2: Because I knew so little about him, and because I had no idea what really happened, I decided to start by trying to figure out, was this the kind of person who could pull something like this off? But when I started looking into Gerald Cotton, this facade that he had built up as sort of an idealistic bitcoiner pretty quickly fell apart, and we realized that he was involved in things before Quadriga that might have given him some of the skills to do this stuff. And I'll spoiler episode three a little bit here. He was involved in Ponzi schemes when he was a teenager. They're called high-yield investment programs, technically. He ran these starting at about 15 years old. And the end of one of these schemes looks a lot like the end of Quadriga. Knowing that he had been involved in this stuff really changed my opinion about what he was capable of. He had been doing these dress rehearsals before, A lot of the things that were going on at Quadriga weren't high tech. As I said, someone who is sufficiently motivated could have discovered them on the blockchain, but they used techniques that go back hundreds of years in terms of it's really easy to collect money from people, pay out high returns and obscure the fact that you're actually paying new investors with money from old investors. And I think when you have something like crypto, it attracts the same kind of people that were attracted to early stock markets and early investment platforms. It makes it easy to hide as a wolf among the sheep.
1: Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk daily opinion section. Ben is joined by two Coindesk reporters, co-hosts Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is sponsored by Interpop and The Sun Exchange. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, Ben, Anna, and Danny...
3: Hi, everybody. This is the Opinionated Podcast. I'm Ben Schiller. Joining me here are co-host Anna Betakova. Anna, hi. Hi, Ben. And Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So we have a very special guest today, and his name is Aaron Lammer, and he is a professional podcaster, unlike the rest of us here. And uh, he is the host of the very excellent Long Form Podcast. And you may also know him from Coin Talk, which was a sadly, interrupted crypto podcast that he co-hosted with Jay Caspian King. And it was really uh, one of the best crypto podcasts out there. And it's sad that you're not still doing it and you really should still be doing that. But he has a new project that we're going to talk about, which is all about Gerald Cotton, uh, who was the disgraced, possibly dead, former founder of Quadriga, which was a Canadian exchange that collapsed spectacularly in 2019 following the death of that founder. And Gerald was said to have died in India of Crohn's disease while visiting an orphanage. But it quickly emerged that the wallets of the exchange were non-existent or they had no assets in them. And the story that uh, Gerald had died with the only private keys to these wallets turned out to be uh, open to question, I think we can say. So Aaron, this is an incredible story, one of the most amazing stories in, in the history of crypto. Why did you want to uh, explore it and, and revisit it in this excellent series that you're putting out?
2: So, uh, thank you for your kind words about Coin Talk. For people who listened to Coin Talk, which overall was a small number of people, but seemed to encompass a large portion of the Coindesk staff, thank you. Remember that I'm kind of a, a connoisseur of crypto scammers. What attracted me to crypto was both an interest in crypto and I am fascinated by the darker sides of crypto. Not so much the like shadowy dark man, dark web assassins for higher parts, but the kind of sillier scams. Like there was this other guy who I believe had been convicted of securities fraud who came back with like a really big beard and a new name and started a different ICO. That kind of stuff I've always loved. And of those kind of stories, I don't think there's ever been one like that of Gerald Cotton. You know, after following this space for a couple of years, I thought I had seen it all. And then I heard about Gerald Cotton. What the original story was, which was amazing, was really only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what got revealed as people really started to look into what he was up to.
3: So let's go back to late 2018 when it first emerged that he was apparently dead. I mean, what was your sort of thinking at the time about that episode? I mean, it sounded suspicious. What were your thoughts?
2: Well, I think that in crypto at that time, and I don't know why I even say that at that time, I think this is still true. But when a bunch of money disappears in crypto, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to say something's not right here. Exit scams were and are so common that I think that any time that something mysterious happens and a bunch of money disappears, we have to look at it pretty critically. And in this case, when people looked at it critically, not only did things not add up, they didn't add up in this pretty spectacular fashion where there was just all of these signs that something was wrong, not just in terms of Gerald Cotton's death, but in terms of what had been going on at the exchange in the year up to his death. And it's really fascinating, actually, because Reddit has an archive, you can actually see people going, hey, I tried to withdraw money and I didn't get my money. And it's hard to separate those things out because I think you could probably find a lot of the same things on the Coinbase Reddit during the same year. So I don't blame people for thinking nothing was wrong. But in retrospect, there were a lot of warning signs that Quadriga really did not have the money that it should have. And Probably someone who was sufficiently motivated and sufficiently skilled in blockchain analysis could have actually revealed parts of this fraud prior to Gerald Cotton's death. But no one was really looking with that intensity until this fantastical story of a honeymoon in India to visit an orphanage that was donated and him dying and them not being able to find his passwords came out. And I think the point where it really clicked for me, where I was like, oh, this is something worth looking into was after that password story came out, people looked in the wallets and the wallets were empty. And at that point, you couldn't really accept either explanation. You couldn't accept the explanation that that he was really dead because then what happened to all that money? And if you thought about the scenario that he was still alive, then you had to go, well, how did that money leave the exchange and go to where it is now? So it's kind of a double mystery. It's a mystery of what happened to Gerald Cotton But more pressingly, for the people who lost money, what happened to all of the money that should have been on Quadriga?
3: Amazing. So just to be clear, we haven't heard the whole series, the eight episodes, and we've only heard the first two or three. In the first episode, I was really struck by this guy you found in India who explained that for a princely sum of about $1,000, you can basically make yourself disappear. And that includes like uh, having a fake coffin, having a fake death certificate, et cetera. So I mean, Cotton had a death certificate, had his name spelt wrongly, but it, it was a death certificate. And there was apparently a body that flew back to Vancouver. I mean, how the hell did he pull this off? I mean, I suppose
2: uh, it, it's easier than people might think it is. So that guy is actually, I think he's in New Jersey or, or the city, but he's a death faking expert who has done a bunch of investigations in India. And I want to say... There's terribly sad things happening right now in India. I don't in in any way want to say like this is a major thing that is going on in India. This is an extremely niche business, but it is a real business that exists in India that people go to India to either fake their death. Or I even actually found people will go to, to fake like a back injury where they will basically go to get insurance money. The primary reason people do this is because of life insurance or because they're in horrible deaths. And there are these facilitators, they're called, who will help you die. And that can mean everything from just getting you a death certificate to faking other things, finding a doctor who will say that they were there when you died. Potentially even, and I think this is rarer, sourcing a body and putting that in a coffin that's buried. And this guy, uh, his name is Steven Rombaum, has been involved in cases with all of these elements. So I was kind of with you. I was like, I don't know, pretty far-fetched. And then when you talk to some people who know about it, they're like, yeah, it kind of happens. You know, I wouldn't say millions of people are doing this, but just a little Googling, you can actually find quite a few people who've engaged with these services.
4: It's really a fascinating story, and I believe somebody should write a quite an adventurous novel about that at some point. This is actually the second crypto story that deserved a full podcast series. By the first one, I mean the mystery of the missing crypto queen about the founder of one coin, Ruja Ignatova, who also disappeared, but presumably didn't die, but disappeared with the money as well. But there is so much. In this story, is it a human story for you first, or is it something about crypto kind of typical about this space?
2: Well, I have to say, when I started this, I didn't know, because I only knew the basic facts that were online about the case. I didn't know very much about Gerald Cotton. In fact, he was a pretty opaque person. Unlike some exchange CEOs like, say, CZ from Binance, Gerald Cotton was not out on social media making a splash trying to promote his exchange. In fact, it was difficult even to find many pictures or videos with him in it. I mean, one of the, uh, there's also a documentary about this, and I was always wondering how they were going to pull this off because he wasn't one of these people who lived in public. He was actually practicing pretty good OPSEC himself, which made him it difficult to analyze, is this just a crypto thing or is there something deeper here? Because I knew so little about him and because I had no idea what really happened, I decided to start by trying to figure out, was this the kind of person who could pull something like this off? I know myself, I'm not the kind of person who could pull this off. I think most people couldn't pull something like this off. But When I started looking into Gerald Cotton, this facade that he had built up as sort of an idealistic Bitcoiner pretty quickly fell apart. And we realized that he was involved in things before Quadriga that might have given him some of the skills to do this stuff. And I'll spoiler episode three a little bit here. If you don't want any spoilers, pause this and and catch up. But um, he was involved in Ponzi schemes when he was a teenager. They're called high-yield investment programs, technically. He ran these starting at about 15 years old. And the end of one of these schemes looks a lot like the end of Quadriga. He would make a bunch of excuses. He would say, oh, uh, Liberty Reserve, which is a centralized currency that he was using the time. Oh, they froze all the accounts. I want to pay people back, but I can't. Knowing that he had been involved in this stuff really changed my opinion about what he was capable of. He had been doing these dress rehearsals before. When you ask if it's a human story or a crypto story, I think I'm probably closer to it being a human story. A lot of the things that were going on at Quadriga weren't high-tech. As I said, someone who is sufficiently motivated could have discovered them on the blockchain, but they used techniques that go back hundreds of years in terms of it's really easy to collect money from people, pay out high returns, and obscure the fact that you're actually paying new investors with money from old investors. And I think when you have something like crypto, it attracts the same kind of people that were attracted to early stock markets and early investment platforms. It makes it easy to hide as a wolf among the sheep.
4: Do you think that as rare and extreme as the quadriga story is, do you think it's something typical for crypto and something that can teach you how this space functions in general?
2: I don't think it is that rare actually. The what is it? Thodex, Theodex, the Turkish exchange a couple of weeks ago, I think the founder took off with about 2 billion dollars. You probably all know more about this than I do, but I I believe is rumored to be in Thailand with it now. So I would say exit scams are a human condition. When you expose people to the temptation of hundreds of millions or now billions of dollars, I think it's natural that some people are going to run away with it. And I was about to say, and that's one of the reasons I think some of the stuff happening in Ethereum with DEXs, decentralized exchanges, is important because it basically removes that human element. Hmm. If we want to be fully critical, I would say that certain DeFi projects have still had similar problems in terms of people rugging projects. I feel like Exit Scam isn't popular anymore. It got taken over by rugging. So maybe I should have called the podcast Rugged. But basically, anytime you create a situation where one person has access to a lot of money or a small group of people, I think the greatest threat is not dark net hackers who are going to somehow swoop in. The greatest threat is always from inside the building. That is where we have seen the biggest risk in, in cryptocurrencies. So I would predict if there's any way to get people like this out of the system it's going to be to limit the possibility of people doing it it's sort of like the nuclear bomb or something you know people always said when they assess the risk of uh weapons that the greatest threat wasn't like diplomatic it was like a rogue individual with the launch codes and there's been all sorts of sort of similar ways of the military basically has forms of multi-sig wallets to protect against some of that stuff in the case of quadriga Jerry was the only person with the keys to the car. So as long as we keep giving the people the keys to the car, I think we'll find more and more Gerald Cottons out there. And you know, if Thodex or Theodex is any example, the stakes are going up, right? There's more money than ever in crypto. There's more money to steal. People will go to greater and greater lengths to pull this kind of thing off.
0: How do you think about that interplay of crypto, it being on one side, like, a facilitator of these types of scams and scammy activities that have existed for years and will continue to exist even outside of crypto, but also creating potentially what is a solution with decentralization.
2: Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's almost like crypto created the problem and has to solve the problem now. And Gerald Cotton's roots were in these two centralized digital currencies, eGold and Liberty Reserve. Ironically like these currencies are basically like, you know, based on Caribbean islands. I think when the guy from Liberty Reserve was arrested, he had like multiple Bentleys in his driveway, but all they were basically doing was issuing cryptocurrency and keeping it in a big spreadsheet and holding dollars. Sort of similar to like what Tether is doing now. Both of them got shut down. So I think the very first wave of digital currencies, we were like It can't just be that the government can shut you down. No one wants that. They're going to get shut down. And you could say the same thing about the earliest exchanges. So now that we've sort of figured out how to create uh, currencies that can't simply be shut down by governments, the greatest threat becomes the insiders who are running the digital currencies. And I think one of the staying powers of Bitcoin has been that it kind of has stopped any individual from getting too much power, I think basically the future of coins as I see it is going to be limiting human power. And, you know, whether you call that decentralization or, or safeguards, we're all talking about not allowing a single actor to get too much power. And so when I look at some of the like Ethereum killers out there, you know, that have very few validators, right? Like the simplest form of this is Gerald Cotton, like sitting there with the only keys to the cold storage wallets. But a another form of that is the ability to control an entire network through the validators. I assume that this kind of behavior will sort of move up the food chain and we'll have to remove the ability for a lone actor to do something bad everywhere. But the good news is that's kind of what crypto is designed to do, right? Crypto Is designed to assume that people are going to 51% attack, to assume that humans are weak and will do bad things given the chance to. So I actually think that the really simplistic scams of like the Quadriga era, those are probably on the way out and are going to get replaced by more sophisticated ways to sort of grab that power.
4: So we moved pretty much to the scams and drug pooling. And uh, in this conversation, we kind of coming from the assumption, and I, I assume you are coming from, from the assumption in your podcast that Quadriga was an exit scam. I only listened to, to the two episodes of your podcast so far, so maybe I you know, haven't heard the most interesting stuff yet. So have you got a hold on her, Jennifer Cotton? What was your experience uh, like trying to talk to her?
2: So I've never spoken to Gerald Cotton's widow. I would love to. It's an open invitation. And I do hope, you know, maybe she hears the show and, and feels like we treated the topic fairly and wants to talk to us. But I have never been able to talk to her. That said, the question of whether Quadriga was an exit scam, I actually do think is resolved. Whether Gerald Cotton is alive or not is not resolved. But the fact that he defrauded and embezzled money from the exchange was the finding of the independent monitor who was assigned to the case, Ernst Young, and it was also the finding of the OSC, the Ontario Securities Commission, which is sort of the equivalent of the SEC. Both of them issued reports that concluded uh, that Gerald had taken large sums of money off the exchange. I'm just gonna go for it. I'm spoilering myself, but you can figure this stuff out with two seconds on Google. Had taken money off the exchange, Gambled on altcoins on other exchanges and cashed a significant amount of money out himself, uh, which went to do things like buying the houses that were in his wife and his names, or in the name of a company that they owned called uh, Robertson Nova Property Management. His wife being Jennifer Robertson, so owned by a company that bore his wife's name. The question of whether his wife knew about it, all this stuff, is an open one, and I would urge people not to leap to conclusions about that. The question of whether Gerald Cotton stole money from Quadriga, I think has been pretty well settled at this point by the Canadian authorities. He did. He stole many, many millions, probably at least $200 million from his customers. So, ironically, Gerald was in a position to do an exit scam. He had scammed money out of the exchange the only thing that's really still up in the air is, is whether he's still alive and I think maybe even more importantly where did all that money end up? Not all of it went to buy these houses or for his travel. It's actually a small percentage of it, you know. You can fly on private jets for a long time before you get into the many millions of dollars. So when we were looking at the show, I think we knew pretty quickly that something illegal had happened at Quadriga, but it didn't explain everything. It, it, It's not like if Gerald Cotton really died, which I think is a possibility, that meant he was somehow innocent. In fact, it's more likely that his death revealed a long-standing pattern, going back to his teenage years, of deeply fraudy behavior. That it wasn't until he got a hold of Quadriga that he really had access to that much money. Prior to that, his scams were kind of pettier and sillier. He even did a few where he would appear in person to promote these uh, investment programs. There's a a part in the third episode where he was purporting to be a guy named Dan Vanaman who ran an (laughs) investment fund and he he met some investors at a vegetarian restaurant. So I think uh, he kind of backed into this big opportunity with Quadriga and certainly was in the middle of some sort of a process of, of leeching money off the exchange. But then again, like, This kind of behavior isn't super uncommon, like, you know, like the Tether. I'm not trying to indict Tether here or open up that thing, but like the people in Tether have money all over the place. You know, they have loans and money on different exchanges. Some of this stuff is like shocking to an outsider, but maybe not so shocking to someone who's familiar with how exchanges operated early on. Perhaps we better say about Tether that we're not saying that
3: it's an exit scam or a Ponzi scheme. And they have been making strenuous efforts recently to attest to their reserves, which is something that uh, Quadriga obviously didn't. Maybe just talk about Gerald Cotton's uh, business partner, because he was the kind of silent genius behind this whole
2: messy, horrible scheme. Uh, Do you want to just discuss who he was? So his co founder was a guy named Michael Patron, who Gerald had known from a long time. In fact, You know, you can actually still see forums that are up. You can see them interacting with each other when Gerald is 15 and Mike is 19. So these guys went way back and they had been involved in a lot of the same stuff, which was this kind of sketchy, centralized digital currency underworld. They had gotten to it for maybe different reasons. Uh, Mike had been part of this thing called Shadow Crew. He was previously known as Omar Danani. I'll say that he has denied that he's Omar Danani, but other reporters have reported that Michael Patron and Omar Danani are the same person, so I'm building on their work. Omar Denani had been a part of Shadow Crew. He was convicted. He served time in a maximum security prison for helping people cash out their money they earned selling stolen identities and credit cards, which was sort of the purpose of Shadow Crew. Jerry had been involved in these high-yield investment programs. And these high-yield investment programs, Ponzi schemes, people would buy in with Eagle and Liberty Reserve, and Mike had been using Eagle and Liberty Reserve to cash people out. He was basically a money changer for, for Shadow Crew. So at some point, both of them ended up working at this Liberty Reserve exchange that Mike founded called Midas Gold, and it wasn't originally known that Jerry had been a part of it. He was quite young. I mean, we're talking about he was a teenager when this got off the ground. but Because of some court documents, part of the case against Liberty Reserve, they were able to reveal what the contact email was for this Midas Gold exchange, and everyone had assumed that it would be Omar Danani or Michael Patron, and it was gerald.cotton at gmail.com. So they had been running this exchange together, and I want to say it's not crazy. It makes sense that the people who would run a Bitcoin exchange were people who had previously run a digital currency exchange. It's a relevant work experience. And even if you look back, this isn't in the show, Satoshi actually discussed creating a way to trade Bitcoin for Liberty Reserve. He considered Liberty Reserve to be a chief candidate for a fiat on-ramping into Bitcoin and you know something that could, Bitcoin could trade against because when there was just Bitcoin, there was no Tether or Ethereum or Circle. To trade against. And some of this series is about uncovering these connections from a culture that existed before Bitcoin that were these early attempts at digital currencies that um, all failed for reasonable reasons, but I think were super influential on the early world of Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin would probably prefer people not remember these early attempts and, and sort of focus on the cypherpunk era. But this was. Very different than the cypherpunk era. This was more Caribbean money laundering energy kind of stuff going on. And that was the world Gerald came out of, that Mike came out of. And I think it was you know, only about a year between when their Midas gold exchange got shut down and they started Quadriga. So this was not an ancient history. It was kind of like, oh, that's over. What's the new thing? Oh, the new thing is this Bitcoin thing. Let's figure out how to do that. And they actually would go to Bitcoin meetups together and tell people, hey, we're starting a Bitcoin exchange. And they would say, hey, tell us how to do it. They were ambitious early on. You know, there wasn't a huge scene in Canada at that time. And anyone who was in the scene remembers Mike and Jerry showing up to Bitcoin meetups and talking this big game.
3: I have to ask you, I mean, what is your sort of gut about where he is right now? I mean, do you think he is on some Thai beach drinking a Mai Tai or... uh...
2: Is he really dead somewhere, do you think? So, I won't fully answer that question, but I'll say the show does ultimately say what I think happened. But you should know already, even without reaching this point in the show, that if Gerald Cotton was found on a beach with a Mai Tai, it would be international news. So, I can reveal that Gerald has not been caught alive somewhere. And I think that is relevant information. The further we go, get away from this time... The fact that that development hasn't happened is a piece of data that's important. So when I first started this investigation, Gerald had only been buried a few months. And now it's been well over two years. I think all of that's relevant information, but I also think that I will probably never be 100% sure of the conclusions. And every time along the way that I thought I knew what was going on, I learned something new that subverted it. So it's a journey, I guess.
0: You know, it's fascinating for me to see the, the different threads of the uh, criminal internet underworld running through all uh, my favorite podcasts. Uh, I, I recognize Shadow Crew from another uh, podcast that I listen to called Darknet Diaries. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that one. I
2: love Darknet Diaries, and it was a, a major inspiration on the show. Like When I listen to Darknet Diaries, I, almost every episode, I'm like, oh, that's such a good story. Uh, I wish I had that. You know, yeah.
0: And to get down to the, uh, the a technical question, I'd love to hear how you think about how to explain some of the more technical aspects of what's going on. Because with, with Darknet Diaries, it's very tech heavy, very get, getting in the weeds. But, and it's not, I would say, not for a very broad audience. How do you take a story like this, which inherently has some mass appeal to it? You know, we've got a possibly dead founder who definitely absconded with hundreds of millions of dollars, and there's all these technical aspects to it. How do you layer all those in building a show?
2: That's a great question. And if I would say that was probably the hardest thing to figure out on the show was kind of where to calibrate ourselves on the, understanding of crypto scale. And lots of times, like if you just look at like what's cut in scripts, it's like me explaining TXs. And I was just like, nah, this might be, this one's tricky. So we wanted the show to appeal to a broad audience. And and having done Coin Talk, which I think had a a loyal but small fan base, I knew that the hardcore crypto audience, at least when we were getting going, was kind of small. Most of the show was made during the bear market when not as many people seemed to be learning about how this stuff worked. So I kind of tried to figure out what were the things you had to know to understand the story versus cool things you could pick up about Bitcoin and crypto along the way. And the first thing that I felt like was really important was this understanding that Bitcoin is not anonymous. And I think this is probably the biggest misconception about Bitcoin and in, in crypto right now is that uh, somehow it's this cloak of secrecy when in fact, it's the opposite. Like we can literally go back and look at every transaction ever made on Quadriga. We can, well, that's actually not true. We can, we can look at all the inflows and outflows. So I basically started with the things that you need to know. And then tried to build upon that knowledge sequentially which is kind of my own experience like I didn't know I'm not sure I knew I probably thought Bitcoin was anonymous when I first bought it you know it wasn't until I like learned about things like Monero that I kind of realized how unanonymous Bitcoin was but to explain why Bitcoin is not anonymous you have to build upon it and explain a few other concepts like that there's this blockchain, and in order for the blockchain to be decentralized, everyone has to be able to see it. And that meant that this claim that Quadriga was making, that they had lost the private keys to these cold storage wallets and couldn't give people their money, that claim was checkable. Like Because the blockchain is exposed, even if they couldn't get the money, they, they could have very easily shown people that the money was there. So I basically felt like each time you needed those explanations, we could punch in. And and I've gotten a very positive response so far of people feeling like it was a good primer for Bitcoin because they didn't really want to learn about Bitcoin, but didn't know that they were doing it along the way with the show. So that would be my goal is that the show is a secret, you know, blockchain 101 class uh, hidden inside a true crime story.
4: You interviewed quite a diverse and interesting group of people for that podcast, from the Canadian crypto folks to private detectives. I wonder if you can share which one of those characters um, maybe surprised you most or told the most striking things that you didn't expect to hear.
2: The person I interviewed who I was the most impressed with was um, Michael Perklin, who is Leave the head of security at Shapeshift. And the reason I say that is because Mike knew Jerry personally. They were friends. They had worked with each other, uh, worked at the same co-working space in Toronto at Decentral Toronto. And a lot of people had these kind of elaborate theories, but hadn't ever met Jerry, had no firsthand knowledge. Mike... Was having lunch with Jerry during this time period. He's a security expert. He's a person who knows a lot about crypto. So he wasn't an easy person to pull the wool over his eyes at all. And he was extremely candid, uh, humble, and really openly talked about the fact that this had shaken his faith in people, that this guy he knew, not some guy he met once, a guy he knew. And a guy who worked in his field had so thoroughly duped him and used him, really, to sort of learn about how people can get away with this. Because Michael Perkland's job is basically to stop people from stealing each other's crypto. And here is this guy who was, had this sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde quality and you know, was getting bunless burgers with him at lunch. So I feel like I learned a lot from him and I also feel like he has like kind of the most nuanced perspective on the case because he was a person who early on defended Jerry and said, this guy couldn't have done the things that you're saying about him. And then this Ernst & Young Fifth Monitor's report came out and the OSC report came out. He took in the new information and went, wait a minute, some of the things I thought were wrong. I need to reevaluate that. And I think that's a really hard thing to do either direction. It's hard for the people who think Jerry is still alive to reevaluate that. And it's hard for the people who knew him to believe he could have done some of this stuff. And so while I've been doing the case, I've tried to stay similarly open to to being wrong and to acknowledge if I am wrong, uh, which I have been many times. Many of my assumptions have been proven wrong.
3: Fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up now and get to the end. Uh, I mean, this is a really an amazing story full of uh, personal detail and uh, sort of tragedy and and also a great sort of insight into the crypto industry and its sort of evolving uh, challenges going forward. Check out uh, Aaron Lammers' podcast series. It's uh, in eight parts. It's entitled Exit Scam, The Death and Afterlife of Gerald Cotton, and you can get it on uh all good podcast uh, platforms where can listeners find that
2: go to um, exitscam.show that should have a list of ever all the places you can get it okay
3: thanks very much for coming on Aaron pleasure to work with you thank you Anna thank you to Michelle our producer and a thank you to uh, Danny Nelson as well thanks thank
4: you Aaron we're gonna be looking for the new episodes
3: Ah, thank and you. and the
0: money we're looking for the money <laughs> too. still oh, looking
3: yeah. for the money yeah thanks. if you find it tell us will do all right cheers Thanks, guys.
1: You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Batakova, and Danny Nelson. Also guest, Aaron Lammer. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Ender. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at Coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Catch other intriguing episodes of Opinionated with Ben Schiller on Coindesk Reports coindesk opinionated apple podcasts or your preferred service thanks for listening we are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at consensus by coindesk a live virtual experience of leaders change makers virtual reality meetups keynotes from ray dalio gary vaynerchuk and much more Get an up-close look at the booming crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com.